0: Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett.
1: And I'm Juliette Starrett.
0: And this is the Ready State. You got it! You, it. you got it! You got Welcome back to the Ready State. This episode for me is a big one because I get to talk to a legend. And I'll I'll preface this by saying if you're a modern person, you've probably watched the Olympics. How many times has this happened to you? You're watching the Olympics and there is an event called the decathlon and the heptathlon for men and women, which really is the crowning of the most well-rounded, best athlete at the Olympics. Today, we're gonna talk to the coach who's behind some of these legendary performances
1: His name is Coach Harry Mara, and he is a legend in the world of track and field. He basically cemented his legend status at the Rio Olympics in 2016. He coached American Ashton Eaton to win uh, his, I think it was his second gold medal in the decathlon. And that means it was a back-to-back win in London and Rio. But that was only part of the story because he also coached Ashton Eaton's wife, Brienne Tyson Eaton to Olympic bronze medal in a hapt- heptathlon.
0: I might say that Ashen is Brienne's husband because she is so fierce, and the two of them together are really this incredible dyad. But what's interesting about Coach Herrera is that he has a, a development history, a, 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 a kind of a, a scoreboard that leads for decades.
1: Yeah, I mean, even in addition to going to the Olympic Games multiple times and coaching tons of high-level athletes, he's also coached youth programs for his entire life and is a big advocate for the role of play in sports. Yeah.
0: When you hear Harry, what you're going to think of is, wow, here we have a coach who's at the top of the game working with athletes who have to be well-rounded, who have to have the fundamentals of sport, sprinting, jumping, throwing.
1: It was a total pleasure for us to talk to Coach Harry Mara, and we hope you enjoy.
0: This is a bucket lister. Well, here's the, here's what we really wanted to want to kind of get, drill into today, and we'll we'll we will talk about your impressive, uh, let's say, pedestrian resume uh, as we <laughs> intro this piece. But short resume. The the heart and soul of this conversation is there's a lot of chatter around, and conversation and confusion about how we should think about making physically literate kids and you clearly have a very unique perspective since your specialty is sort of not specializing.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Well, I'll tell you what. So if set us up for a little bit of, if you were going to, you know, cause the decathlon and, and these multi-sport events are so demanding. I don't think people realize, um, how demanding they are, but you really have to be a very unique person to be so competent in so many fields. I remember in track and field in high school, you know, there was a few mutant girls who would, you know, sprint and then they'd walk over and throw the shot put and we'd get a few extra points. But we're going far beyond that. Can you spot a decathlete from a mile away?
1: And can I interrupt really quick to see before you answer that question, can you go back in time and explain to us what the decathlon and heptathlon are? And then answer Kelly's question. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, the decathlon and, and heptathlon, and just just for uh, uh, easiness' sake, when I mention decathlon, I'm including—I'll say it includes the heptathlon, which is the women's version of the multi-event. It's called combined events today, but either way, so when I say decathlon, I'm referring to both. Uh, it's a competition that tests running, jumping, and throwing—all the different dimensions of the individual events in track and field. It's multifaceted, uh, you know, there's a there's a title through uh, the King of Sweden, gave Jim Thorpe, because he not only won the pentathlon in Stockholm in 1912, he won the decathlon, and little known, he, he competed in the long jump and I think the javelin, and he played an inning on the baseball team at the Olympic Games. So when he got his decathlon award, they said, you're the world's greatest athlete, and that kind of stuck. Uh, in looking for a uh, decathlete, the first thing I guess I would look for is a well-rounded kid athletically, a kid who has done a number of different sports activities or played a number of games. I grew up in the 50s, I was born in 47, and I was a kid in the 50s. We played everything when the school bell rang at two thirty, we were on the streets playing anything and everything until the street lights went on and they don't, kids don't do that today. We had physical education. Kids don't have that today. It's been cut out of schools and so on. So there is a void there. There's a huge void there. If that's getting to the point of answering your question, now when you get a decathlete and you're training a person and he wants to be a decathlete or the female wants to be a heptathlete, you have a bigger problem because maybe they weren't versed in some of the basics. Fundamentally, even though, as you said, you guys said it was grueling, it's tough, it's hard. Yeah, 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 it is. But the bottom line is it's 10 basic events, running, jumping and throwing. And there's no voodoo. There's no magic. It's all basic. So the the parent as a parent, or the coach as a coach, has to be drilled in fundamental, basic movement patterns. Does that help?
0: Yeah, and yeah. It, really, it really speaks to you know the the approach we've you know developed independently, of course, and, and working alongside you know amazing coaches, where we see that you know there's a lot of talk about you know dedication to basics that you know the the but the fundamentals sometimes aren't sexy and there's people don't have access to the fundamentals. And you know what we've seen in sort of this the new modern athletic development phase of children these days is in my experience and talking with other coaches that you know we're thinking if kids just play enough sports, that will take care of it. And now we're seeing that kids don't have enough variety in their movement practices or in their games or their playing and their competencies in these fundamentals that we really have to augment it with some formal movement training to give them the basics in jumping and landing and throwing even.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. They're not getting it in school. I mean, school programs are being cut out or they're being, you know, even though the classroom teacher might be trying, he or she is not trained in those areas. Uh, And uh, it's, it's, it's it's a little bit sad. I ran an after school physical fitness program for 10 years down in San Luis Obispo for at risk children. It was amazing. We went right back to the basics, the, the parents and the parents that were around because most of them were at risk kids and maybe only one parent was there or something. Uh, they grew from one year to the next. You taught a kid proper sprint mechanics, running mechanics as a first grader. We went first through eighth grade. No, first through sixth grade. And uh, they came back the next year and picked up right where they left off. Kids learn things if you teach them properly. When my children were born, I have two children. I didn't want to push them into sports like their pop had been in and so on. But I told them this when they got to be three, four, five years old. I said, I'm going to teach you how to run, jump, throw, and kick. And I'm going to teach you correctly. If you go into sports, you're going to be better because of it. Every parent really should do that. And if every parent isn't drilled in that, then they need to find someone who can teach those basics. And then as the kids go out into the playground, they're going to do those things better.
0: That You really are nailing it. We've seen that you know, suddenly kids sort of mumble through middle school. They, maybe they have a good coach or their high school has a strength and conditioning coach. Then, they, then they're competent enough to get to college. But by that time, we've seen that kids are burned out overused, strained. I just saw a swimmer who, a high-level swimmer, you know, at a big university locally who literally could not hold a plank position. You know, that just had fundamental poor understanding of basic mechanics. And and what we hear that, that at the college level and at the professional level, the next level up, is that there's this big hole and that kids are coming through with just sort of, you know, bigger holes in their clothes, for lack of a better phrase. The question is, how do we begin to support those high school teachers and those middle school teachers? Because that seems to me, that's where we should, as professionals, we should be planning the field so that we can reap that harvest later on. Is there a way, do you think, where we can reach backwards? I mean, you're lucky if you grew up in San Luis Obispo and, and you're there, my at-risk youth sports f- coach. But, I mean, that's one in a billion opportunity. How can we change this fundamentally from top down?
2: You know, it's a a real tough question. It's a really a tough question. To to go back to your first issue where some kids, by the time they got to college, were, quote, burned out, that's due to specialization. Kids, you know, today's world is all based on, and America is always based on the God-holy dollar. And parents see their kids maybe have a little bit of a skill in golfing or tennis or golf or or, uh, soccer or something like that. They specialize thinking, mistakenly thinking, that the more attention they can get in this soccer, you know, go fall, winter and spring and all year, and all summer and so on, they're going to be better. It's the biggest misnomer in the world. They're going to get better at soccer, but they're, they're going to have a ceiling as to how good they are. And psychologically, they are never have going to be kids. They're not going to be swimming in the pool and hanging out. And Heck, we were running around doing all kinds of stuff as kids. We were being kids, but yet still playing sports. And that's where some of the burnout comes. Uh, they're not developing their kinesthetic awareness, which means their movement skills because they were only doing one sport, soccer, tennis, gymnastics, whatever it may be. Uh, so by the time they get to high school, uh, they, you know, they may make the basketball team or something like that, but their broad base of ability is going to limit them as to how high they can take that sport. Uh, here's an example, maybe. Uh, into the decathlon Uh, Ashton Eaton uh, was not the best of throwers when I first got to Oregon uh, seven years ago we worked on the throws we were making some inroads in the shot put and discus and but not making any inroads guys at all into the javelin and he came out to practice one day and he had no concept whatsoever came out to practice one day and he was walking over towards where I was standing you know to start practice and he was fooling around with his buddy And they were doing like taekwondo kicks with their legs and with their arms and turning your hips and all that. And I thought for a second, I said, damn, you know what? He was a black belt in taekwondo as a little kid. And I took – when he got there, he didn't even warm up. I gave him a javelin, put it in his hand. I said, trot up to the line and just turn your hip like a taekwondo move." He threw 33 feet farther than he ever did in his life. That came from (laughs) another sport
0: or you were the worst coach in the world you suddenly became the best coach in the world
2: a 33 foot pr with a single cue
0: you are a genius yeah. genius
2: well if he didn't if he didn't do those uh, that other sport and others he was a wrestler he was a football guy uh, he played a little basketball he played baseball he was an unbelievable baseball guy if he did so in teaching any of the skills that he wasn't familiar with in the decathlon and Brianne the same way, she was a great softball player and soccer player as a, as a kid growing up. Then I took from those and I played all those sports, knowing what that movement is and if it related to the shot put or the high jump, I brought it back to them. They had a familiarity. One of my best feelings, emotional feelings about Brianne and Ashton isn't the gold medals, isn't the world records isn't the championships and all that stuff is about the second maybe the beginning of the third year i was there with them they said hey coach this high jump is just like the javelin isn't it i said oh it is really and they were starting to get an understanding of their inner relationship between one event and the other and that became that was because of their background in athletics does that help you? Does that answer your question or I missed it?
0: No, that, that's that's exactly right. And, and actually, one of the things that you bleed into is that you are pretty fluent in a lot of basic mechanics. And I suspect that if I give you enough time in any, you know, a couple of days in any sport, you would be fluent in that sport. Do you think there's – we see that dearth of experience at the coaching level? Coaches are so hyper-specialized that they can't see, they can't – you know, get out I remember there's th- this is the example. I remember some Russian thrower who said the more maybe it was like Al Oda or someone is like the more I threw everything else except my implement, the better I got. You know, the more I, you know, threw the baseball, the more I threw the javelin, the more I huck stones, you know. Do we as coaches need to also get better and a little bit more fluent and understanding and play?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. You really I finished my lectures here and I've been sitting around just having coffee with the younger coaches. A lot of them are division two. I said, stay there. Don't go to division one. You're 24 years old. You stay there. You learn all the skills. Maybe they were a sprint coach or a high jump coach or something. Learn all the skills. There's interrelationships there. And yes, there is a tendency today, uh, Kelly and Juliet to specialize as a coach. It's a big mistake. When I was growing up, when I was trying to get a job in coaching at my age back then, you better have known all the events because there were no assistant coaches at the time. And you would have a better job if you a better chance at the job if, in fact, you knew all the events. So we learned them. We learned them all. Now the specialization is a little bit of a problem. If you have to be broad based. I use three principles, Newton's laws. And and I tell people, you can argue with me all you want about a technique, but you can't argue with Sir Isaac Newton. The law of inertia, the law of acceleration, and law of action-reaction. And I can apply that to any movement pattern in any sport, whether it's lifting weights or a guard pulling in football or a guy stopping on a diamond taking a, a jump shot in basketball, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know when the guards should pull in football because I'm not a football coach. And I don't know when they should do a certain play in basketball. But the skill and the movement pattern, I can teach it. I can teach it. That's not egotistical. That's just fundamental, basic physical education.
1: Right, because you understand the principles. The uh, principles. And then That's if all. I could just go back for a minute to this specialization conversation, which we've been having a lot lately. And by way of background, we've got an 11-year-old daughter who is in a club volleyball program, And I see firsthand how difficult it is to avoid, as a parent, encouraging your child to specialize because everybody is sort of on a treadmill, so to speak, of thinking I've got to do this fall and then I've got to put my kid in these six camps and if I don't do that, they're gonna get behind. And even Kelly and I knowing um, exactly what you said before about how it's, it's actually worse for the kid in the long run to specialize, You know, what would you say to parents um, in terms of how they can just create natural breaks in their kid's schedule and not get sucked into this super specialization treadmill
2: I think it's uh, if that was the case if a parent was came up to me and asked me that question that's a good question you asked right there um uh, it's almost a paranoia that, in the parent's case, that and, and, and rightfully so. It's not anything against them. But they're thinking, hey, if I take my daughter's son out of this volleyball situation, they're going to, quote, fall behind. And therefore, when they come back, somebody else is going to be better. He or she is going to get that scholarship and not my kid or something like that. Oh, that's no,
1: you, that. you've hit it right on the head. I mean, I've actually heard parents say that exact thing to me.
2: <laughs> All right. H- here's an example. I was at UC Santa Barbara as an assistant coach, as a young coach, back in 75 to 77. They had great volleyball teams, men's volleyball teams there. Uh, Gus Mee was the head coach, and they were banging heads with UCLA and all the top programs. More people would come to watch the volleyball program uh, games than the basketball programs at the time. The second year I was there, the volleyball players came to us, the track coaches, and said, teach us how to jump. We're powerful. We're strong. We're lifting weights. We don't know how to jump. They asked the track coaches. They asked experts. Uh, I had a decathlete that was came out of Michigan State. He was six four in the high jump, not very good for a world class decathlete. I had him play basketball every day before as a warm up before we did our weight training. And in the fall, we were weight training four days a week. And eventually he could dunk a basketball, but he wasn't very good at it. Eventually he could take off from the foul line and dunk a basketball. And and he jumped six feet, nine inches that spring. And somebody said, it well, was all the plyometrics you gave? It had nothing to do with plyometrics whatsoever. He didn't really get that much springier doing it. He learned the art and the skill of jumping. So what I would tell that parent is, okay, if, if Mary wants to get, you want to take her out of volleyball, and you see that her weakness is she's not strong enough. Send them to Kelly and you guys. If if they're not supple enough, then find a specialty person who's good on flexibility or yoga or something like that. But uh, it's more than one-dimensional in order to be a great athlete in any sport. It's more than one-dimensional.
0: Well, one of the conversations that we regularly have is like if we remove the our fetish, fetish fetishization of professional sport, right? Which is about – because it really is I – mean, professional big-money sport has worked its way into college and unfortunately just drags high school along with it. But if we're talking about making competent, skilled people who enjoy moving, would you say that there are – found besides foundational positions, which I think we all agree in foundational movement skills, are the foundational right. experiences that you see – you know, kids who played soccer or they had a hand-eye coordination or they did some kind of sliding sport or they had an aerobic base earlier. Are there some fundamentals that you could say, hey, you could have good success if your kids did these things?
2: Uh, yeah, I, th- I think I know what you're asking. Um, uh. You, you talk about physical fitness and, uh, um, yeah,
0: general physical preparedness. What, what does general, it look like yeah. to have a kid who could, who's just happy and moves well and enjoys, you know, can play some pickup basketball later on.
2: All right. Maybe let me, let me answer it this way and see if this is answering your question. Uh, somebody says uh, to you, Hey, you're really in good physical fitness shape or you're really fit or you're really ready to go. Or, maybe you're just lifting weights or something like that and you look pretty good and, To me, physical fitness is muscular strength, muscular endurance, cardiovascular endurance, flexibility, speed, uh, tenacity, the ability to come back. It's a whole dimension of areas. So if that person, that athlete can have every one of those components that I just spoke to and others uh, develop to a certain level, then he or she can take whatever sport they're doing, be it a volleyball, spiking a volleyball or whatever it may be, to the next level, higher level. And maybe if they're deficient in one of those areas, then you have to uh, build that up a little bit. And that's really, isn't that the decathlon? Let's say you're good in the, uh, the 100 and, uh, and, um, and the high jump or something, but your, uh, your anaerobic endurance isn't good enough and y- y- you're not very good in the 400, you have to work at that skill a little bit more and isolate it and so on. So I think the more dimensions you can develop in your kids, and therefore, by playing different sports, you develop those different dimensions, the higher they're going to go as an athlete and the more successful they're going to be.
0: One of the things that we're seeing now is the onset of hard technology. I mean, people are tracking, they're catching data, we're doing genetic testing. Do you think there's a, is there a role for that? Do you use that stuff? And is that important in high school? Is that important for, you know, should do we be keeping an eye on that?
2: You're right in the fact that there is more of that. And let me be politically correct here. A lot of it is voodoo. A lot of it is voodoo. A lot of it that's being done is being done by the scientific people simply so they can publish a paper. And that's a pretty hard line. People will say, wow, Coach Mara, uh, you don't believe these scientists? Yes, I do believe the scientists. And There's fundamental movement patterns in all particular skills. A lot of them come down to proper sprint running mechanics. A lot is written about uh, new ways of running fast. I just read an article, Kelly. This one blew my mind. I read an article saying sprint – a scientist said this. Sprinting is a very unnatural – uh, moving pattern for the <laughs> and my I read it to my wife who is a physical education uh, uh, major and she said what you <laughs> tell that person that when those cavemen were running away from the dinosaurs there was no unnatural movements those guys were moving <laughs> you know and the Indians when they were chasing the buffalo so they could eat at night and you know get a buffalo they were moving man and two people said the same thing one was Carl Lewis at his lecture out here today, and another person said the same thing. I said, now, wait a minute. So we're listening to a scientist say it's an unnatural movement. It's the most natural in the world. So much so that I might let the cat out of the bag. I'm going to do a research study, not on analyzing um, Usain Bolt sprinting and then trying to tell young kids, this is how you do it. I'm going to do a research study with the kinesiology department on little kids. And how they run correctly until a coach tells them otherwise and screws them up, and show that the little kids do this, and then you move from that direction. It, they're doing it well. Why won't they do it well as they get older? Unless some coach told them something different. <laughs> so I love that. I'm not against scientists. I'm not against scientists, but I think, you know, without expanding the point, without spending too much time on it. I was eight years old. I made the little league team as a kid. My father was a baseball guy. So he taught me baseball first. Probably I shouldn't have made the little league team. I should have been on the farm team or something like that, but I was decent. So they put me up there. Uh, my dad came to the first game. I'm playing center field guy hits a routine pop fly. Not a problem at all. I got under it. I caught it, but I caught it with the basket catch. Yeah, back in my day, Willie Mays was my hero. He was the center fielder for the New York Giants and then the San Francisco Giants later. And I caught him with the basket catch. So on the way home that night, my dad said, hey, um, why did you catch the ball that way? I said, well, Willie Mays is my hero. And he's the greatest player ever. And, uh, <laughs> he goes, no, that's what Willie does. You watch Willie and you learn from him and you take what is good for you and leave the other uh, other part aside and i didn't know that at the time from the standpoint of coaching but that's exactly what we do today we look at other athletes we say hmm, that's good it's technically sound that will work with the kids i'm working with or it won't work with the kid i'm working with so you pick and choose so the scientists will give you some information but it can't be empirical data that you just totally accept without some uh understanding I hope I wasn't too worried.
0: Well, that's exactly right. And I think you bring up this really interesting concept called universalism. You know, I have had the good fortune of working with Dan Pfaff. Um, He's sort of, uh, you know, of course, you guys are in the same field. Um, And he believes that there there are universal ways that the human being is supposed to move. And that the only differences ultimately are the length of your femur, the length of my torso, or, you know, my ulna is different. So let me, tempo maybe look different, but there are universal positions that human beings reflect. And what I heard in that is, you know, maybe you almost ascribing to the same theory in a different way.
2: Exactly. It is. There's a fundamental way in which to, uh, to, uh, let's pick on running on to sprint properly. If, if you're standing there and at attention, and I want to push you over, here's a simple example. I want to push you over and I use just my index finger and put it on your chest and try to push you. Probably I'm not going to push you over and I'm going to create some forces but not a lot. If I put my full hand on your chest, I could probably have an easier chance of pushing you over. Why? I'm creating more force against resistance with my full hand than I am with just my finger. If I sprint and only stay on my toes, one, I'm negating the, uh, the lever down there, the ankle lever, which can help propel me down the track, as opposed to getting my full foot on the ground in a neutral position and then get a stretch reflex off the heel hitting the ground when you sprint, not leading with the heel, but you get a stretch reflex. I'm propelling myself down the track faster. So, yes, that's universal. Now, Bolt may take uh, longer strides because of – The guy's a monster. He's 6'4", 6'5", something like that. And uh, Harry Mara at 5'6". I couldn't take any strides anymore. I'm too old. But, uh, you know, uh, they're going to take a whole bunch more strides and so on. Fundamentally, the same pattern, uh, maybe different tempo, as you said, uh, Kelly, but um, the same position. Yes, there is a universal way of doing it correctly. Here's another example. Let's say the kid comes to practice today and his hamstrings are really tight and uh, quadriceps are really sore. He hasn't recovered from a workout a couple of days ago or something like that, but yet you still want him to do some running. If a human being runs correctly, absolutely correctly, be it tight hamstrings or, or, and, and or tight quads or or whatever, if they run correctly, They will not get hurt. The only negative thing, or not negative thing, the only thing that will happen, they won't run quite as fast that day because maybe that muscle hasn't uh, recovered or the central nervous system hasn't recovered enough or something like that. But if you're running correctly, even if you're sore stiff, flat, whatever, you'll still run uh, safely, but you just won't run as fast.
0: If you're trained to run correctly (laughs) or no one messes with your running pattern.
2: Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Well, I just want to go back a little in time because I, I think if I'm correct, you've been coaching for almost 55 years. What is... Uh, I've
2: been sport for 55 years. Probably 50, been coaching for 40-something.
1: 40 40-something. 40 but regardless, um, you've been in and around the track and field sport for the, most of that, most or all of that time. What is it that you love about coaching track and field?
2: One word. One word. The challenge of it. And, and that's what keeps me going today. I chose the Decathlon a long while ago because it was such a big, you know, as opposed to doing, I, I coach track and field, obviously, at all the events and so on. But then I really started to, to really go after the Decathlon. I chose the Decathlon because it was almost unbeatable. And it, it in effect, it is unbeatable. Uh, you know, even in nation's world records, there were other, there were events within there that could have been better. Uh, and that's the nature of it. So it's a tremendous challenge, uh, Juliet, and I like a challenge. It's exciting. Uh, I want to I think that I can beat it, and, and if I can on a certain day, you know, we all have bad days. The athletes do, the coach does, or whatever. But it, it's enough of a challenge to say, I'm coming back and kicking this butt, and uh, that's what keeps me going. That's what I like.
0: One of the things that I really like watching the Olympics or world championships, and the heptathlon is a great example, is that all of the women – the amount of support and mutual respect for inter-athlete seems to be really high. And I, I of course, I don't know the politics, I don't know <laughs> the the infighting, we call it paddle ticks and paddling, but it seems like, and again, I'm just pro- I'm projecting, but because you're moving against a standard, or always working against a standard, it changes some degree. I mean, clearly you are always competing against another human being who is ruthless and smart and savvy and working hard, but against that standard, it almost sets decathlon heptathlon up as a different event in a mindset do you feel like that mind that growth mindset opportunity somehow stems out of that that you can never master this you you you're maybe the best in the world but you're only ever against the standard
2: yeah i think so i think so there in you're correct there is a brotherhood sisterhood among the the, the dec and the hep. and you see them all taking a victory lap at the end uh, because they all were through a war. They're all, I always say they're always in the same kettle of hot water. It's not an easy deal. And there's pitfalls along the way. Uh, so many pitfalls along the way that each one wants to beat the next person, but they're also respectful of the commitment, the time, the, uh, the, the perils that everybody faces and they understand that completely. So yeah, they're, um, uh, there's a great brotherhood and sister, uh, sisterhood there, and I think it adds to the event. I only wish that in the Olympic Games and the World Championships and what have you, the big meets, that um, more education to that aspect of the event wouldn't, would, be, uh, would be broadcast and educated to the people watching. The Olympic Games are coming together of the youth of the world in friendly, albeit ferocious competition, correct? Well, you don't see it any more than that than in a, a two-day contest, man against man, women against woman, in the happen in the deck. It's 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 exactly the ideals of the Olympic Games.
0: I love it. One of the things that I think has become more interesting for Juliet and I, as we've aged up and are still racing, is that I see that a lot of people are really good on a single day. And one of the things I really respect about these events is that you have to put multi you have to change gears. You have to put multiple events together in a day over a long day. I mean, the athletes are out there for a long time. I don't think people realize how long. And you have to be good multiple days in a row. And for Juliet and I, it's become a lot more interesting to see not someone who's hot—you know, fire gets really hot one day and then is destroyed the next day—but to, you know, be able to develop a body of output of work that looks consistent. How do you train for that, or can you train for that? Because that seems to be something that's really important for humans to be consistently great multiple days in a row.
2: Absolutely, and that—that is an excellent question, and it's an excellent perspective on your guys' part. All right. Here's the deal. I've been interviewed more of late because of the, the last seven years because of the exploits of the great exploits of Ash and Bree, obviously. And one day, uh, two, three, four years ago, I don't know, a guy came up and says, Harry, what's the deal? Every major meet that Ashton does or Brianne does, they're ready. You have them ready for seven events for Brie and 10 events for Ash. How do you do that? And I, I never thought about it. And and I and I said, you know, I I have to think about that. So I thought about it that night. And you know where that came from? That came from where this, the first part of this conversation today came from. That came from Harry Mara, eight years old, playing in the streets of Cohoes, New York, day after day after day, all the different sports. And, and not necessarily in a physical education setting that helped, but just playing the sports, you figured out how to throw a football and how to get ready to play a hockey game and how to throw a frisbee and how to jump over a, uh, a bush, which was a hurdle and stuff like that. So all of that came from that background. And yes, the other answer to your question is yes, you can train for that. With Ashton and Brianne and all the other kids I've coached over the years, we put that into a situation. So maybe at some point during the practice, we're practicing the long jump, I'll say, okay, two more jumps, eaten up, you got two fouls, it's the Olympic Games, you have to get this third one in, and it has to be good technique. So I would put the pressure on them periodically in practice to get it done. So you mimic a dress rehearsal, just like the Radio City Music Hall does dress rehearsals and stuff like that, you do the same thing in your practices.
0: I have heard that so many times. One of my friends, who was a diver at University of Hawaii, he said I was a middling diver. But my coach made me do my ten dives every practice in a row. I never got to do a redo, and I got really good at what I was doing. Those ten dives, you know. (laughs) I had a slalom coach who made us do full lengths every day. You know, we always wanted to do little technical drills because we didn't want to suffer. But he made us run the river like we actually did. And and you know, you really do get competent at that. It brings up this piece that I think you're you talking about is the, the model of you in the field playing in the dark and shoveling the snow so you can play basketball. and you know, There's a lot of games we play as kids that have certainly eroded. Like We had a Cy Young award-winning pitcher tell me about the fact that he played this game as a kid where he would throw the ball, a tennis ball against the wall, and if you caught it, you got to go again. If you dropped it, you had to bend over, grab your ankles, and you got to be pegged by the person who threw the ball.
2: <laughs> and so like
0: and so you got a you got you know, you kids took a tennis so ball to the butt. But what it did was these kids didn't ever drop the ball, ever. They built yeah. in this game <laughs> where they were they were highly incentivized. And some of that play, you know, I I wonder if hopscotch teaches single leg control to girls, for example. You know what I mean? And Absolutely. and it, and have we? And are we missing sometimes the need for play, and that the play can really guide us back? More structured play, play with rules, play without rules. How do you, Where where does play fit into all this?
2: It, you're hitting it right on the head. Uh, a number of things. Yes, we need more play. Yes, we. Uh, uh, my son Andy is my youngest. He's going to turn uh, forty here in uh in april but uh he grew up in san mateo uh and he hung out with a gang of kids and they started playing but they ended their playing together after school a lot sooner say than i did maybe by the time of seventh grade they were done they didn't go through eighth grade and maybe freshman year in high school and so on it started to break up and and so on so that was a sad point for me you know they just got into other things maybe computers were coming up at that time Uh, we need to get back to more play uh, shoot, I just lost my, my, uh, train of thought here for a second, but, um, uh, uh, I, I, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Well, that's okay.
1: That's okay. I well, I, I've got one back to the, well, we're, we're talking a lot about kids and play in generally, but, um, you're obviously at the pinnacle of your, your sport coaching two very well-known athletes. Um, when you look back down sort of the track and field pipeline to local communities and schools, um, Is it possible that out of those kinds of programs, there'll be other athletes like the ones you're coaching or, you know, is there not that base and you won't start seeing those athletes?
2: You know, uh, I'm not sure of that answer relative to will we not see them, or will we not or will we see them? The bottom line is this. If you teach, if coming out of a school you have an athlete who's pretty good, and he or she has not done a particular skill yet or has been taught that skill in a correct fashion. doesn't have to be explosive, jump high, run fast or anything, but do it correctly. Then it's an easy transition. Way back in 1975, at, when I was at UC Santa Barbara, uh, I saw a junior college kid who never—it was a good athlete, but he never pole vaulted before he came to the university. The guy who was coaching the pole vault at the time saw some potentiality. He taught the kid how to jump correctly. And in 75, first time the year kid pole vaulted, he went 16 feet. That was pretty (laughs) good back. 1975 on like that's a,
0: impressive. a sketchy, sketchy poll That's
2: ridiculous. <laughs> that's those amazing. poles were so sketchy, uh, Kelly, that you looked at them sideways, they cracked. <laughs> they broke. Well, you <laughs> know,
1: that's that's like a, our good friend Erin Kafaro is a two-time Olympic gold medalist. And she actually was just a walk-on at University of California, Berkeley on the rowing team. Um, just naturally a beast and a gifted athlete. And they taught her how to row. And she went to the Olympics and won two gold medals.
2: That's fantastic. Yeah, because yeah. she was an have, athletic have, person. And and maybe she had good movement patterns as a kid through some sort of parents or physical education or whatever, and then they and now she's getting a little older and mature, a little stronger and so on. Then uh, you could teach a new skill, and because the patterns were correctly, wham, away she went. Great job.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now, what, one of the things that I think is remarkable about, about your coaching is that you have had Market success coaching men and women. Do you find in 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 track and field, is it common that most of the coaches are coaching both sexes? And uh
2: no, go ahead, go ahead. Oh,
0: and this and and how do you shape that differently? Because I'm in love with coaching middle school and high school girls right now. Like it's my it's my favorite thing to do in the world. Like I just feel like there's this hole in the world and I had no idea that I might even have a knack for coaching twelve year old girls.
2: Well, you know what? You, you like that. You really enjoy that. It's what your passion is right now. So obviously kids aren't stupid. They see that and they see, then they develop a the word trust in both you from a coaching standpoint of view and maybe even from a guidance standpoint of view. And I think in answer to your question, uh, you know, is it different to coach a female as opposed to a male initially, you have to develop a trust in whoever you're coaching all right male or female you have to develop that trust and that trust then can't be broken in any way shape or form and then once that trust is established then the little nuances maybe you treat this per maybe you treat the guy a little bit softer gloves when you find out what his or her his personality is like as opposed to sometimes the girl's a tougher person and you and you, you, you get a little hey come on get Get your head out of your backside. Let's go. Let's let's get after this next row. So I think it's a matter of psychology, you know, and uh, and understanding that person and knowing that uh, that person knows that you're there for them. Uh, And um, with Ash and Bree, husband and wife, you know, at the end, they were boyfriend, girlfriend at first and then engaged and then husband and wife. Uh, People say, how did you do that, Harry? And I say, I don't really know, (laughs) but I did (laughs) And and in if Ashton threw a shot and it wasn't right, I would address him a certain way and if Bree threw a shot and it wasn't right or we had to make a change, I address her a certain way. It's just the nuances that you find of what makes people tick.
0: Yeah, understanding what drives them. Well and yeah this relationship that that human skill development is is about human interaction. It's not just, you know, the Russian Drogo, you know, product of some kind of, you know, cold scientific sports machine it's not it's really you know coaching i feel like is messy you know it's 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 there's so many variables and speaking of the number of variables you have been coaching five olympic games do you feel like athletes have gotten better since barcelona or is something changing or is it the same caliber of athlete but you know the details are are cleaner
2: I think athletes are improving. I mean, world records are still being set. Hopefully it's not with, you know, performance enhancing drugs and activities and stuff like that uh and we police our sport pretty closely uh you know in that in that respect i mean there's some issues out there obviously now with the russians and and what have you and all that stuff that's going on but yeah i think athletes are getting better in general i think coaches are getting better there's more and more opportunity i'm at this conference right now as i told you there's a million 24 25 26 year old young college coaches they're able to interact with older coaches experienced coaches like myself and others that are here when I was coming up, I had to get on a plane, fly down to Texas and hang out with Tom Tellez. And uh, when he was coaching Carl, I said, I want to just follow you around and then I'll buy you dinner at night. And let's chat. And we did that. So, yeah, I think coaches in general are getting better. There's more availability out there. I think if we had the physical education programs in the junior highs and the uh, the more play time, I think it would even go to a higher level, higher, higher level.
1: Uh, I want to tell you a quick story and then ask you a question, and that is that our youngest daughter, Caroline, has the most beautiful running mechanics. And so when she was five, we I worked really hard to find a local track and field program because it wasn't obvious to me and coming across my radar. Um, and we show up for our first practice, and she's five, and it's a mixed-age group, and the coach is like, okay, Two four hundreds to warm up. <laughs> and, uh, Kelly and I sat there and watched our little teeny daughter try to run, basically like what well, the equivalent of two miles as a warm up.
0: <laughs> wow, we're the worst parents. We're the and worst, worst like, parents well, ever. <laughs> her, her, her mechanics, her four hundred meter high hurdles are gone.
1: <laughs> but but anyway, um, we're still huge fans, and you know we we toss out the idea of going back to track to her a lot, and hopefully one day she will bite. But can you make a pitch to other parents about why their kids should think about doing track and field?
2: Track and field, uh, the skills in track and field, the running, jumping and throwing are, are skills that are involved in all the other sports, football, basketball, baseball, tennis, golf, whatever it may be in some way, shape or form. So if in fact, this young daughter or this young son has the ability to be trained correctly, to be trained properly in the rudimentary skills of track and field then he or she should go to that dimension and move on to other sports as they specialize or maybe they end up specializing in track but it will help them do you know the european system was in physical education in grade school right through middle school and high school is two-dimensional uh track and field gymnastics movement patterns that are fundamental to all other aspects of football basketball baseball what have you uh and uh uh then, from there, when they got that great training in track and field and gymnastics, then they maybe moved into uh, volleyball or maybe they stayed with those and became specialists, or maybe they went into the swimming and diving or something like that, and what have you. I was in Monaco last week for a function, and um I was riding back to the airport. Thomas Roller was in the car with me german national, uh, uh German, and he won the Olympic Games in the javelin and we got chatting and he goes uh, you know what uh, tell me a little bit more about your weight training program with Ash it's unique it's uh, more dynamic moves than any of us else are doing he said and i copied it and i ended up winning the olympic games and that was a kind of a pat on the back uh, a little bit and i just told ash breathe out this morning and they were they were kind of tickled about it so it's it's a real fundamental it's a, it's a fundamental concept and i think more and more people now Will be will be taking things like that from track and field and applying them to their skills. When I uh, – an, another component of why track and field, when I was asked to come over and do the conditioning stuff for the Giants, they said uh, – and this was back in the, the 90s, uh, late 80s, 90s, early 90s. They said, would you come over and do our fitness program? I said, no, I won't. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, I'm not going to do your fitness program. It's not a good fitness program. It's you're lost. You're, you're doing this all wrong. I said, well, I'm going to come over and I'm going to rechange change it. And I'm going to do this. If I don't do the job, you can fire me. There's not a problem. But just stay out of my road. I want to do this right. <laughs> well, I changed everything around to ply- plyometrics, dynamics, speed, et cetera, for the starting pitchers and others. And uh, they led the league in the least number of days on the disabled list. And uh, they won a the Western League division. And so on. So track and field is the, and I use track and field principles as the foundation. I've changed their uh, base stealing techniques coming off of first, how they move. Uh, and uh, track and field is the basis for everything if it's being taught right. If it's being taught right.
0: You really bring up a, a really important topic, and I think something parents could find is that you know we see a lot of things that look like skill training, a lot of ladder drills, and you can go on the internet and. But the fun, teaching kids to accelerate and decelerate, teaching kids basic sprinting mechanics, it just doesn't exist. I ask a lot of the world's best athletes who are playing on these teams, I'm like, who taught you to run? And they're like, um, you know, it's very quiet. And I feel like there's some really low-hanging fruit there. I think you really bring up an important piece that we don't pan back and say, what are the fundamentals? Jumping and landing. You know? running fast and throwing things and now you're starting to even sound like Dan John a little bit, you know, pick things up, put them over your head, carry them around. You know, it's, you know, it's, 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 it is simple, but the, the application is, is trickier only because you have to be really refined in the simplicity.
2: Exactly. And I think you said a little earlier that uh, something along the line that uh, training can be a very uh, mundane, boring thing because you're doing the same thing. You're trying to work the same skill over and over again, but it is a fundamental. So I mix it up and I play around uh, different games, hurdle mobility drills, for example, stepping over hurdles and doing uh, side steps over them and what have you. All right. They're good drills to add to it. I make it more athletic and I tell them to the balance to uh, one pound medicine balls, light ones in their hand. So now you're moving through off of a single support system and now you got to make your sagittal planes right and left uh, interact. So you're developing more of a kinesthetic awareness and stuff like that. But yeah, the, the basic fundamentals are, are all it takes. Carl Lewis yesterday gave the talk here on sprinting. Carl Lewis is a great athlete. Everybody knows that but he's a young coach. He's just started coaching at uh, Houston maybe a year or two ago. He did an impeccable job of delivering what sprinting is all about. You don't need to hear or listen to anything else. He hit it right on the numbers. It was great. And it was just fundamental moving patterns.
0: Do you think we have, we are reaching the pinnacle of what human performance is? I mean, you know, Ashton says he's he's feel like he's he's trying to show people how far they can go and how far humans are what they're capable of. Are we even close or or should we expect incremental gains or are we still just figuring it out?
2: No, I don't think we're still figuring it out, uh, but I, I do think I don't think we're at the pinnacle. I think I think somebody could score ten thousand points. <laughs> you know, Ashton scored nine thousand, and severally scored nine thousand. But uh, uh, is that going to happen in your lifetime or my lifetime? I don't think so. Don't hold your breath on that one. But can kids can, can kids still continue to improve? I think so. Uh, in the decathlon, per se, this is a, this is on the subject, but a tad off. It may be a while. Maybe some of you break Ashton's record pretty soon. I don't know. But uh, it may take a little bit longer, only because a lot of people aren't going into track and field. If they're that talented, they're going to probably go football, basketball, baseball, because they can make a lot more money than they can in track and field. But no, the the physical end is open. Uh, Maybe this is the best answer right here. I never went into coaching to, to develop Olympic champions, to develop world record holders, to develop NCA champions, none of that, none of that was ever on the radar. I went into coaching for one reason and it's similar to what your passion is right now, Kelly, what you're talking about coaching junior high school kids. I went in it to help people and I knew that if I went in to help people that I better know my per, uh, profession, know my trade. And maybe I picked that up from my father, who was a dentist, who used to spend his Saturdays and Sundays driving around to other dentists and watching their work and trying to improve himself as a dentist. And when, a, when an athlete or a parent asks you to coach his athlete, to me, that's a huge responsibility. They're putting their – athletic future in your hands and I wanted no part of being negligent and not doing everything possible so therein lies uh, you know if you get people like that coaches like that athletes feed off that how far can they take it who knows i I don't really know I'm not a soothsayer on that respect but I think they can go a lot farther
0: well you just have to keep coaching until uh, you know and Bree have children obviously not
2: <laughs> Not a snowball's chance in hell. <laughs>
0: <laughs> coach.
2: He thanks. always said that. Coach, you're going to coach my kids. I said, don't hold your breath. Yeah, you're. Like- <laughs> I'm going out on the Pacific Crest Trail and taking hikes and going fishing. I'm going to go have some fun, man. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we will meet you there. Yeah, we'll see you there. That's fantastic. Coach, thank yeah. you so much for your time. It is such a pleasure. Um, you know, I, I, we're we're really trying to help parents and young coaches make a template, begin to see a schema of. You know, a way forward that really ultimately protects kids, saves kids, and benefits sport because we get better athletes.
2: It, it's, it, it, I think that's a great uh, closing right there. And uh, tell parents to keep looking and searching. And if we can present some vehicle where they can really get exact information, correct information instead of voodoo information, mm-hmm. then it makes it that much easier.
1: True fact. Thank you so much. Thank you, Coach. so fun to talk to
2: you. You're welcome. Good luck. Good Thank night. you. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com.
1: The Ready State is the podcast of mobilitywad.com. Where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves.
0: We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Mobility Wad. That's W O D, as in workout of the day. Till next time, cheers, everyone. You got it! You
1: Kelly Starrett is the New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is the co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility WAD, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it!
0: You better stop it